I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today needs no introduction. I'm going to spend the next hour with Ruby Wax. You know Ruby as a very successful comedian, a TV writer, and a performer for over 25 years, but she also holds a master's degree in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy from Oxford University. And because of her effort to spread mindfulness and mental health awareness, her very specifically funny effort and the way she does it. She was awarded an OBE, an Order of British Empire, which is a a recognition reserved for those who have major contributions in arts and science, but also in charitable work. And she was awarded an OBE in 2015. She's the author of several books, Sane New World and A Mindfulness Guide for the Frazzled, have been to the number one spot in the Sunday Dimes bestseller list. Her book, How to Be Human, The Manual, has been also a major bestseller. And she, through her tours around the world, have gone almost everywhere to try and talk about her own personal experience from depression to happiness, from the noise of the world that we live in to uh, mindfulness. In 2017, she launched a Frazzled Cafe in partnership with Marks and Spencer in the UK, a place for people to go and find sanctuary, if you want, a place for mindfulness and and to discuss uh, challenges in life. And in November 2017, she was announced as the president of the UK's leading relationship support charity, which is called Relate. On top of all of that, what do we know Ruby most for? For her openness, for her interesting self-perception and for how amazingly funny she is. So I love Ruby in every way and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Oh, and I actually have tried to have this conversation last Friday and then it didn't work out. So I actually made a bet with Ruby where she is right now in Cape Town that I will manage to get her a coffee delivered right before our conversation. Proud to tell everyone the coffee was delivered five minutes ago. So I'm so looking forward to a fun conversation with my favorite Ruby Wax. Ruby, it's so nice to have you with me today. COVID-19, in my personal view, is the golden age of empathy. It's like you never... I'm so with you. Yeah, there was never a time where you could feel the pain of others as much as you do now, because you feel it too, right? And so the trick is, you know, if you feel lonely, just call someone because they too feel lonely. If you, if you feel that someone needs a coffee right? You can, <laughs> you can send them a coffee. It's, uh, it really is. And I think the idea, of course, is... So are you. Yeah? Yeah. I'm so, I'm so at that point yeah. of now we can start to develop a part that we were born with. But it's like, I always say, it's like we have a Ferrari on top of our heads, but nobody gave us the keys. Yes, exactly. Or actually, they gave us the keys, but no, no driving lessons. So we're driving like mad, basically. No instruction manual. 
Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody's yeah, yeah, waiting. Yeah. Absolutely. So how long are you staying in uh, Cape Town for? Well, I used to just stay maybe two weeks and then I'd have to go back. Uh-huh. And then I come back and write. But what do I have to go back to? Nothing. And I do um, really interesting talks to really interesting organizations. Tell me more. I don't have to go there anymore. The world is different. So I might stay here. Did you hear of yesterday's lockdown in the UK? Yeah. It's crazy. You know, I avoided this because as humans, we get so addicted to bad news. Like it becomes our fix. And because I'm human, I did it too. You know, waiting for the death tolls on CNN. You know, this is in March. And I had to wean myself off because I could feel that salacious feeling. You know, why are we watching the death figures? We have to know, but not every hour. No, I don't think we have to know. I honestly don't think we have to know. I mean, I don't think we have to know either. Think a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, if someone died in Pakistan, you never knew about it. How can I respond to this? It's like, you know, okay, life is full of harshness. Why do I have to be aware of all of it? And we've become so addicted. Pick your uh, area where it touches your heart. Otherwise you get, what is it? Compassion. Exactly. Overload. Uh, yeah, I, no, actually, I think you get empathy overload. So what ends up happening is that you're just constantly filling yourself with the pain of others when you really have no capability of doing anything about it. It's like, okay, so... Well, you, it's like you drown with the person drowning. Sort of, honestly. And, you know, like you rightly said, pick your area. So find an area where you actually are so passionate about that area and you have some agency so you can actually do something about it, big or small. You know, it could be as simple as the neighbor is 70 years old and you get her soup. Yeah. 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 Do you know about my frazzled cafes? No. What is the frazzled cafe? Well, I started this four years ago. I I was doing a talk at Marks and Spencer's and I said, my dream is, is that, and I was going to go to Starbucks, is that we would have meetings, small intimate meetings similar to AA, but without the 12 step, but a place where you could speak from the heart. I tried to crash meetings at AA and they busted me that I'm not an alcoholic. (laughs) That can be fixed. (laughs) Yeah. But I stood up and I said, you know, my name is Ruby Wax and I repeat my stories when I'm drunk. And they said, get out of here. (laughs) Because other people were eating their pets. So, um, So I said, my dream is to form, you know, like the Quakers. And so Marks and Spencer said, don't go to um, Starbucks, use Marks and Spencer. So for four years, we had meetings up and down the UK. We were just about to open in Scotland, where trained facilitators uh, would meet with, in their cafe with free cookies and coffee every two weeks. This isn't a walk-in. It's intimacy and it's, you can be anonymous. And Some people can't come every two weeks, so they, you know, trade. But there was a core of people, and some of them met every two weeks for the four years. And we, I had a radio show where they spoke and said, here's how my life changed. So then when COVID happened, I took over, and I have a, about 100 people a night and hosts, then host in the day. So there's a num- you go to frazzlecafe.org, and you're immediately given a smaller group. I've done this since March. I did every night. A hundred people come on. You could feel the compassion oozing off the screen. Oh, yeah. 
there's a form to it. We don't just, you know, I begin and end with mindfulness to cool everybody. And then they speak. And I always say, what's the temperature or what's the weather condition in your mind? But nothing about the news. And this isn't therapy. And if you are in a state, here's some, we'll get you help. I've written down since March some of what they say. And every time somebody speaks, whatever color, whatever age, wherever they come from, you see their heads going like this. And then there's breakout sessions and you can weep. They find their tribe and they're always saying, thank you for doing this. Thank you. You know, I wake up to this. And I say, what are you thanking me for? What do you think I'm getting? So I only stopped for a month, literally two days ago, because um, it was compassion overload. I love them, but my heart would be torn out. You know, there were some regulars and their stories were unbelievable, but I'm going back in January. But the meetings still continue. And it's a charity. And it was my baby. You know what I mean? If people say, well, you do this charity and that. I go, uh-uh, just this one and mind and, you know, anything to do with mental health. But it became my baby. It is so beautiful. So um, you have to pick your area. And it's, it's 100 people. And then we have 15,000 online waiting to get in. But I always think, what can I do? It's like you say, it's the tiny, it's a minuscule that swells. And then the world changes. But then why are there 15,000 waiting? I mean, online, we can add as many groups as we can, can't we? Because we have trainers, you know, that are, there has to be a host. And so we can't accommodate that much. We can't build it fast enough. That's so beautiful, Ruby. It has to have integrity. I'd love you to have watched one. I definitely would. I mean, in an interesting way, I think. So a lot of my followers, I'm sure yours too, are coaches and people who have practiced happiness and compassion and a bit of spirituality sometimes with a bit of psychology sometimes. And I'm, I'm almost certain many of them would volunteer if we tell them about it. I mean, if any of our listeners actually is interested, reach out to me and I connect you to Ruby. I think the, the idea is we've reached a point in humanity's history where it's now become stupid if we don't hold each other's hands because we have nothing else to hold onto, to be honest. It is the time. Well, it's something I'd love to talk to you about. Our director was just in a car crash. Oh, my God. Yeah, so we've had to have somebody else take over, but we're up and running. She can't use her hands, and then she's going to see how much damage there is. But we have a group of directors, and then our team are, there's a couple MPs. And do you know Helena Kennedy? I don't know. Oh, she's a very famous barrister. So we have a really good group of trustees, but we couldn't train fast enough. We can't so far. And then we want to, um, you know, I'd like it to expand. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. It's important now. We couldn't build the tech fast enough to accommodate this. And I'm sure there's a way. The tech should be easy. The tech is probably the easiest thing. Now that you don't have to get people together physically, it should no, be but easy. what was difficult, it's easy for me, but they couldn't, it's just a group of three girls and we have to pay them, but it's setting up, this meeting is going on at this time and really each host has to watch the other one. So we're really careful that everybody's qualified. You know, it's got integrity. So you couldn't just say, okay, 10,000 people are doing it. We have to watch them. 
So I'd rather have a smaller group that's really doing it right. You know, and I got an OBE for it. So it's, it's not a bad thing. It's got integrity. Everyone matters. Look, if it's 100 people or one person, if you're making a difference, then it's absolutely worthwhile. And I'm willing to train as many people that want to be trained. Yeah. Um, we asked Headspace to help us and, you know, obviously Headspace for their own thing. Everybody wants to do their charity. But I said, this is the first thing where my ego's out of it. I said, we're the only people online that aren't about wine tasting or flower arranging. This is about people dropping the bullet and it's okay to not be okay. And it's just pure from the heart. I don't see any other, I wouldn't care competition with us that are giving that space to do that you know i keep saying we knew how to do it back when we sat around the fire you know after a hard day's hunt and people if you're not into mindfulness ever lower each other's cortisol by being in the tribe but religion's gone family's gone you know it's all been eaten away in the name of each man for himself why ruby why why is that the case i mean in a very interesting way, so I come from the Middle East, right? And my entire upbringing is quite Eastern. My life, my whole life is Western, Western educated, all of my career and so on. But yeah, we're losing everything. We're losing, forget religion. I like to study this. That's my area of interest. So when I wrote my books, I do my show and with the monk and the neuroscientist, I can answer some of those questions as to why evolution gave us of certain facilities that just we haven't got the bandwidth to use in the 21st century. So when people going, oh, I have low self-esteem, I'm not good enough, you say, this is not your condition, it's the human condition. And there are such interesting things. What's happened, it wasn't always this way. Starting in, when Darwin said survival of the fittest, you know this, he didn't mean the most aggressive. He didn't mean that. He meant those who cooperate best. And then... Uh, yeah. Herbert Spencer changed the definition and said, no, the poor don't deserve it, and to justify his greed. And then, of course, the other industrialists jumped on, Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, to say, I mean, they did great things too, but to say, yes, it's the alpha that wins. The alpha doesn't do it. It's the guy who's liked best. Those are the ones that move on. Yeah. Anyway, you know, until we get Gordon Gecko saying greed is good and everybody cheers. And that changed history. I swear to you, I write about that. It was that sentence, greed is good, that triggered an avalanche of justification of I can do anything because there is good in what I'm doing. Because humanity, at the end of the day, no one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to be evil today. Everyone thinks that what they're doing is good for something, right? And so you tell them greed is good, and there we are. Everyone is just going through in that individual approach of like, it's me and then nothing else matters. Nobody analyzed it, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, I'm, this is my fascination. You know, people blame tech, but tech is necessary because we don't have claws or sharp teeth. So humans always needed tools. And this happens to be the tool du jour. <laughs> it was always coming. And it didn't land in your garden like a meteorite. Tech came out of the necessity to survive and just got bigger and bigger. You know, we couldn't speak loud enough. And so Gutenberg had to make the press. It's a necessity, but psychologically, there was no reason to find happiness. I mean, I always say evolution only cares about your survival. It couldn't give a shit 
bit about your happiness. And that's so interesting to me. And to have courses called happiness courses is just, for those of us who have depression or have darkness, that makes it even worse. Mm. Mm. Humans have a dark side. It's quite uh, interesting because tech at the end of the day, like everything else we do, you just overdo it. So you really needed a bit of it. But where are we going with this? Do we really need what's coming? I just finished my third book, which is about artificial intelligence. And you have to wonder. I have to get the name of it. Oh, not yet. Not yet. It's not published before September, but uh, I can send you a draft if you want. It is actually quite... Would you? I'd love that. Oh, yeah. Would you? That would be amazing. And I'd love your feedback. I'd love that. Yeah. I think the trick is, you know, you have to start wondering what is missing in our life that can be fixed with more technology? Is what we need more technology or do we need actually more connection? I wrote my last book, And Now for the Good News, To the Future with Love. And there's a chapter on tech where I went to businesses. I I worked at Patagonia, the sportswear company, and and then I went to Finland to look for it. So there's education, business, tech, community, and health. So the whole point was to find the green shoots, you know, to take your focus away from another disaster because you are where your attention is. It's neurologically a fact. So I rerouted my focus and went for the last two years to find these guys and I've never been so happy. But we have to understand that that's growing there. You know, that business is conscious capitalism now. But in tech, there is tech that's enhancing humanity. They're not all shysters. You know, we're all shysters. Greed is good. But there's other people building some really interesting tech that will enhance our empathy, like Richard Davidson. Yeah, I think the impact of dilution is probably... We need tech now. We need it. Because look, at this is how we're exchanging our hormones. We're bonding. Sometimes I bond with people more online. I totally agree. I totally agree. I had an incredible conversation with a friend yesterday that we wouldn't have otherwise because it was just connected, no distractions, and it only could happen online. So when I worked at Google, I don't know if you know, but I ran a big portion of Google for 12 years in the, in the years where Google was truly, truly changing the world, making it a lot better. And uh, Google's way was quite eye-opening because Larry would teach us that the biggest charity on earth at the time was Google giving away knowledge for everyone for free. And of course, that wasn't because Google had endless pockets but it because there was a business model that brought in enough money for that continuous democracy of information to continue. And so, of course, you realize that the amazing techies that can build the most amazing things on earth, when they live in a world where greed is good, they have to start being greedy just to survive, just for them to put their tech out there. I mean, in my mission for, for One Billion Happy, I mean, I've been very fortunate working at Google for many years, but I can't make that happen unless I go beg for money or I, unless I make money myself. I have to be able to generate profits so I can pour it into this. And where was the moment, you know, where Enron got corrupted? Where was the moment where Facebook, you know, there's a moment where you go, how much furniture do you need? Is it one person and they pass the disease down? What's the breaking point? I'm so curious. I lived through all of it, and you'll be amazed. There is never a moment. I'd love to know. Can you tell me a little bit? 
I mean, I'll say this openly. I still believe Google is a force for good in general. I mean, without the democracy of information, you and I know we're writers, right? Without your ability to search online and get all of that knowledge and analyze and learn something on YouTube, it's still there is more good than the challenge. The challenge is this. The challenge is I joined at the time when Google was maybe 6,000 employees. And there was a group of us that were so true to the values of Google. Democracy of information, organize the world information was the mission at the time. Don't do evil. All of that was at the very, very core of the company. But then you get to a point where the business in itself becomes so complex that you have to hire what I call the bureaucrats. And the bureaucrats are not bad people. They're wonderful, wonderful people, but their entire world revolves around, let's put guardrails in place so that people remain within that path. Because if you're running 400 billion queries a day, they need to be executed every single time correctly. And so you have to start stopping people from doing what they're passionate about, doing what they believe in, and start doing what the business requires. Once you start doing that because of the size of the company and because, of course, of the design of our world, you know, you're a publicly traded company, you have to report quarterly, you have to make the profits grow. The founders themselves are no longer able to keep track of everything. The senior leadership is not aware of every single line of code. And then suddenly, someone who is targeted to increase the profits a little bit will do something to increase the profit a little bit. Another person who's targeted to get the content to penetrate the community in a certain way will write a piece of code that does that. And then very quickly, the company becomes much more so than a force for good. And it's not because we didn't want to. It's because you could no longer fulfill all of that, because it's so complex and so big. I don't know, of course, you may have watched The Social Dilemma, the documentary. Yeah, yeah. He's great, isn't he? Yeah, and I felt the same way when I left Google. I left because I was an active part of the big part of innovation for five years at Google X. And then after emerging markets, I, I was the chief business officer of Google X for five years. And you start to suddenly realize that we're building amazing tech but that maybe the world does not need those things. I mean, when you really think about it, if you know self-driving cars are motivated by a wonderful cause, which is 1.2 million people die on the roads every year, but hey, half a million people die of malaria, 17.9 million people die of heart disease, one of every four people that you know in the Western world lives, they live, they don't die, but they live in depression, are these things that are more important and that maybe this is what tech should focus on? What are we doing about climate change? What are we doing about getting our nature's balance back in place? What are we doing about single-use plastic and so on and so forth? Which might not be Google's problems, but you start to realize that the lifestyle that Google and Facebook and everyone else is promoting, if you want, is getting us more and more into that selfish all about myself. I want the next iPhone. I want the next tech. I want to appear in a certain yeah. way. Well, they're tapping human, the reptilian part of the brain. Totally. I know there's a psychologist and a, many neuroscientists behind human addiction. You know, we were talking about frazzled. There's a moment you have to keep it. I know. I know it's about profit. But there's a moment where you have to give it back. 
you must know Obi Felton at mm -hmm. Google X. Oh yeah, I know you Obi very well. Yeah, so do I. I like her. You know, they've just made a cap to um, determine depression. Okay, I know she's been working on that for years. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. They've been working on it for years, but they have no idea about human psychology. You can't put that many free electrodes on somebody's head, and there is no indication. But money has to go to brain science. You know, it has to go to Oxford. They never got enough money. All the money went to cancer. Fine, that's fine. But very little went to the mothership. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I had a conversation with her a long time ago, and then I see what they're coming out with. It's a waste of time. Maybe I'm not at liberty to comment on this because OB and Astro and all of the team is my dear friends. But the interesting question for me is that you and I, on the other hand, can actually meet someone and within a second feel that we want to hug them because we know they're feeling down. And so is the idea to enable more and more tech or is the idea to enable more humans through the current tech to be more human? You know, one of the interesting tech is uh, the bot, you know, that does CBT. Mm -hmm. A, it can wake up at two o'clock in the morning if you need somebody. And CBT isn't for a psychopath or, you know, for deep depression. But CBT doesn't have to be a human. It helps you reflect on, is this a habit of thinking or am I actually being accurate? Those bots are really interesting. But it's for a limited amount. But if you can get an illness at the gate, sometimes it doesn't exasperate into the full tsunami. But, you know, I always say, I wish there was something like um, Fitbit, which to me is insane. You know, oh, you only went on the Himalayas? Tomorrow you're going to swim the Amazon. I even wrote in my book, I want to see how many people are lying on their sides at 9,999 steps, having a heart attack and just trying to kick one more time. <laughs> but I wish there was something, a mental Fitbit, that would be able to measure your cortisol levels and say, okay, whoever can sleep three hours, you know, and jog at two in the morning and make a muffin. That's them. Here's where you have a choice. You can keep the flow going, which tastes delicious, or you can have a heart attack. It's your choice now. It would be taking your inner temperature in the most accurate way where you realize you have choice. You know, it's like, do I do 10,000 more steps? And yet that, that piece of technology doesn't say, and now you break your knees. And so people don't learn how to self-reflect. Yeah. And now we're going to depend on technology. So let's make it really work. I said, oh, it's got to test your cortisol levels, just like your pulse tests your heart levels. I'm not saying I know how to do that, but I always say make the mental Fitbit. So do you actually believe that technology is the answer? That we yeah. can solve our unhappiness and depression with technology? It has to be because... Humans only survive by building something like a phone because they need to communicate. But Ruby, you yourself in your talks, you sometimes say that when, you know, we were in the caveman and woman years, we didn't have time for depression. We had other things to worry about. You know, when a tiger showed up, we ran away. And then if we survived, we had no reason to continue to be stressed. We could, we could live a life where we were not depressed before. I can't agree with you. I mean, it's like saying nobody ever had cancer. There was a disease. They didn't call it depression. 
you know, and, and in the Middle Ages, they call it possessed by, you know, which there was always this propensity. I mean, you can't find it in a skeleton, but it's always been around one in four, I would say. I don't mean anxiety. Always one in four? Well, it's not my area. We didn't study in Oxford. I don't know, but I know stress is stress, but there is a brain disease. We didn't have Alzheimer's, you know, uh, because nobody lived that long. I really don't think this is me and everybody might agree that there's, it's being pregnant or not pregnant. You're either a schizophrenic or you're not a schizophrenic. It doesn't matter what your experience is. It's what genes were passed and then it's experience. Nature, nurture. But there were probably in the tribe enough genes that were, had a propensity for depression. And then at one point, for some people, they think that disease came out of, again, human necessity for people to understand such darkness. I don't believe in God, but there was a moment where it was a reaction to nature. But this isn't my area. But believe me, it goes pretty far back. <laughs> Again, I mean, it's okay to see it from different angles. My view simply is that there are things you can actively do. Of course, it's more difficult if you're in a state of depression already, but there, there is improvement that can happen by actually taking charge of certain habits in your life. I completely agree. Like you said, you know, if you're counting the death on CNN, you're probability of being depressed is going to be much higher than if you're not. If you have the genes for it, if you don't have the genes for that particular disease, like cancer, the worst things in the world can happen to you. I think they did from the 9-11, who actually couldn't survive the trauma and who could. Same with the Holocaust. Some people are resilient. They don't have the gene, and yet the most horrific things can happen to them, and they're resilient. So, you know, it is complicated. I don't think you can give yourself depression, but you sure can blow your mind with trauma and anxiety and being, you know, frazzled was a word I didn't make up. And it's a new phenomena. We used to just have stress, you're right, but now we're getting stressed about stress. But it still isn't a mental illness or anxious about anxiety. So, you know, by doing mindfulness, when I... I haven't had it in a long time. When I start to feel the foothills of depression, it passes much quicker because I know it's coming. And then you can do things about it, like shut off social media and don't have a thousand dinner parties because that's part of depression. <laughs> I mean, I made a joke in one of my books. That you, uh -huh. This is in one of my books way back. I don't always write about mental illness. You know, that you can only do once. But I said... Any invitation I would show up in because you don't want anybody to know something's wrong. And also you're starting to speed up. So I found myself at a charity, get this, for Save the Puffin. Do you know what a puffin is? I have no idea what the puffin is. A puffin is a bird uh -huh. that's in northern Scotland. So this lesbian with a kind of mohair sweater got up and did a speech about how tragic, get this, in a world that we're in, how tragic it is that puffins can't land on their roosts anymore because of the winds in the Orkneys. Mm. I'm at that event. Are you getting it? Well, I said, well, they <laughs> killed beacon birds and they carried me out. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> that's depression. You know, I mean, that's how crazy I was. So when I feel it coming, I don't accept invitations about puffins. <laughs> yes. It wasn't just the puffin. I also took up skin diving 
in December, you know, there was more madness. And then I really wrote, I mean, this is, I did a show about it too, is that it's only a sign. This isn't, you know, because I turn it into comedy, otherwise I wouldn't have survived, that I started painting my house, but I was looking for the color beige. This is in my book. So I kept running back to the paint shop going, this isn't beige. What is beige? And they'd go, dusky, Tijuana, Mexicana, sunrise, baby bottom, squishy taupe, whatever. And eventually... <laughs> I got elephant breath, okay, which I really did at Pharaoh and Ball. And I said, I used to run back and forth, and I hear them going, Shh, it's her again, pretend we're statues. <laughs> and then eventually I was institutionalized. And when I got there, there were other people holding paint swatches going, does this look like beige to you? <laughs> <laughs> That's not mental illness, but people who have depression know what I'm talking about. It's these little things that are insanity, but now multiply them by a thousand. I was trying to find the institution the first time, and I ended up in a bedding office holding a pajama bottom and a sock. I couldn't find the institution. Well, you know what I mean? There's such confusion, and your brain's gone down. So no muse, no meditation is going to help you in that state. So hold on, hold on. So this is many, many stages of getting to that point. One is... Why beige? I mean, like, what's wrong with elephant breath, whatever, whatever no, it is? it's just a joke. I'm turning it into comedy. It's nothing's yeah. wrong with elephant breath. Well, you know what I mean. In the beginning, I turned depression into comedy. Which is brilliant, by the way. Totally brilliant. I mean, it's, it's a long story. How I was outed and then had to find a job where I could say I had depression because they busted me on it. And I thought I'd lose my job in TV. And then I did shows on stage, and on stage, nobody could touch me. Mm. <laughs> you know? Especially if everyone's laughing. Huh? If everyone's laughing. And I used to do my shows in the beginning in mental institutions for two years. I did 17 priories and something like a lot of national health organizations, and those were my happiest years. Because if you can make somebody laugh with a serious mental illness, you're almost on Broadway. And I used to make jokes that the bipolars would say, I laughed, I cried. <laughs> <laughs> and they really liked me. So those were my people. Everybody says, don't you insult people with mental illness. I said, are you kidding? I played the hardest audience there was. Mm. And mentally ill people were, well, they would wake up. Do you think there is a level of seriousness about life that we shouldn't cross? You know, it's like, Look, life is to be lived and to be enjoyed. And even when you have an illness, as long as you're trying your best to do something about it, let's not get more serious than that. I mean, I don't know. I, I find that sometimes when people think about certain things, give them too much value, too much weight, that sort of prohibits us from actually accepting them and doing something about them. When you started to talk about, especially the way you positioned it about yourself, about how, you know, your experience with depression is actually, to you, is a funny thing. It's like, is it, it's so strange. It isn't funny. I have a lot of people in the audience with cancer and depression. I say, which is worse? Every time they say depression, nothing hurts as much as that disease. That's why people commit suicide. Yeah. It's impossible to live with. It's impossible. I only am funny on stage when I don't have it. If I had it, I'd be in a cave somewhere. You wouldn't be able to talk to me. Yeah. So, it, you know, 
depression comes and goes. So does bipolar. But Alzheimer's, sadly, it doesn't come and go. It depends what disease you have. You used to say it's like pouring cement in your head and then it paralyzes your whole body. Is that how it felt? Yeah, but it's from one day to the next. Except because of mindfulness, I can feel somebody starting to pour the cement. Whereas before, you're taken by, it's like a demon took over. And the next day, it's impossible to think about taking a shower. Mm. So, Ruby, I actually wanted to ask you today because I woke up feeling a lot of that overload of empathy. You know, I have a lot of friends in the UK and I think everyone is really, really, really sad. They're disappointed. They're anxious. What do you think people should do? I think what you said, pick up the telephone if you can't get Zoom. I would say join Frazzled. But if you can't, find community. Talk to someone. Talk to somebody. But don't bullshit it anymore with this cocktail party chatter. I don't care what business you're from. I've spoken it. Well, you know, of MI5 or whatever. Not all the time, but is find a space where you can get away from the job or a bank or I've spoken at Google. There must be a space where you can treat each other like humans and that vulnerability is not weakness. Gordon Gecko should have said <laughs> vulnerability is good. Totally agree. How do you think? What do you think people should do? So I, I posted something on Instagram today saying the first thing to do is to accept what's going on because you know, hitting your head against the wall only makes it worse. So just accept that it is. And I said, write down 10 things, whatever they are, even if it's just, I'm going to masturbate every day, whatever it is, right? That makes you a little happier despite that situation. And one of them should be compassion. One of them should be, I'm going to reach out to people and connect because we're all in this together. But there is more, there is more, than just bad in our life. I mean, in an interesting way, if you have the, the bandwidth, the brain cycles to sit and focus on a lockdown, that means you're alive and none of your loved ones is in intensive care and you have enough food to eat, at least for today, you're safe, there is no tiger eating you. And it's sort of like maybe instead of being a reason to feel unhappy, that actual feeling that I want to be unhappy about this also carries with it a reason to say, I should be grateful. Actually, I'm at least one of the more fortunate ones, if you want. Okay, then tell me the people who are privileged enough to have food, the bigger part of the population, and I have no answer, who have no food and, um, and are living in four walls mm -hmm. with nobody. Yeah. What is the answer? So the answer is the whole idea of compassion overload or empathy overload, as you called it. So I think the fact that I know that someone is, is in such difficult situation is a call to action for me to do two things. One is I need to feel their pain and relate to them and understand what they are and accordingly feel grateful that my life is a little easier. But then I need to take action, whatever that action is, if I can just send them a teddy bear for a dollar, whatever that is, and try to help in a way. My late son, I don't know if you know, but I lost my son when he was 21. He taught me an incredible lesson once. He said, you know, I was that 
larger-than-life Google executive who felt that he can change the world and everything I did affected billions of people and all of that crap that fills your head. And, and he comes to me, and Ali was very wise, very zen, very quiet. He spoke very few words. And he said, Papa, I have something to tell you, but I'm afraid you might get upset. And I said, no, Habibi, tell me, what is it? And he said, Papa, I don't think you'll ever fix the world. And I was like, why, Ali? Why, you know, all of the Harvard Business Review crap that they filled my head with, you know, I was like, why? You should have the spark. You should expect that you can change the world. And he said, well, there will always be suffering. There will always be someone who is not finding enough to eat, who is sick and leaving our world, who is in pain, who lost a loved one, who broke up with a partner, whatever. There will always be a bit of suffering. And he said, all you can fix is your own little world. And I think that, to me, really made a very big difference because I am an empath. Did you say world? Yeah, your own little world. World. Your own little world. Yeah, because what can I fix if I haven't fixed myself? Nothing, right? So my own little world starts with fixing me. This is why I tell people, write down 10 things that make you happy, that make your life a little better despite the situation. Focus on you. One of them should be compassion that focuses on the people around you, the closest to you. And then in Ali's words, he said, if you do well in your little world, your little world will grow. If you can manage to work well on yourself, then you'll be able to affect me and my sister and your immediate family and friends. And if you then do that well, then you'll be qualified to affect your department at work. And if you do that well, then maybe you'll affect your company or your neighborhood or your country, right? But at the end of the day, there will always be someone that's outside your little world that is suffering. And what can you do? I mean, in Islam, we say the only gift you can give them is the feeling in your heart that you wish for them to be better. It's sort of like, yeah, I can't fix everything. I may be able to give a meal to someone today or to a thousand people today, but I can't give a meal to 4 billion people if 4 billion people are hungry. So do I kill myself about the 3,999,990,000? You know what I mean? Did you say you lost your son? I did. I did. I did. I don't know if I lost him or if I gained him. So Ali, uh, Ali left our world, but became closer to me, I think, th- since he left. I don't know if you believe in that stuff, but I feel very, very strongly connected. Well, I think he was, he had the Buddha brain. He did. He was very unusual. Very, 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 very unusual. And not as a result of studying. He was very unusual when he was two. Like, I swear to you, Ruby, I have pictures of me and Ali that were taken from the back because we would sit in front of the beach. We lived in Abu Dhabi at the time. And he would just sit next to me and listen. Like, I'm talking to a a wise sage, and then say a few words in his child, maybe by age four or something, he would start to say a few words that were quite impactful on my life. And yeah. He gave you your Mm. wisdom, which is such a... Which is so true. And it's not the way parenting works, right? No. I'm supposed to be valuable in that relationship, right? You twisted it around. Yeah. He really did. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, was a very interesting relationship. So what's your plan for the new year? What are you writing about? First of all, I hate the word new year. Okay. There is no new year. (laughs) Okay. Why is that? It continues. Okay. 
human celebrations don't mean a lot to me. I agree. We're looking for a reason to celebrate while we should celebrate every day, I think. Every day. Yeah. You know, you're saying things that I, you know, only came to it <laughs> not at a young age about fixing yourself and then go save the world. Otherwise, it's like carrying a grenade and someday it's going to detonate and you're going to spread your madness. Or, <laughs> you know, if charity is in the wrong hands, you're doing more damage. But, mm. you know, these dinners where you, oh my God, I did a dinner for oligarchs. And I said, you know, they wanted to build uh, playgrounds in Russia. And I said, you know, every egg, because it was caviar, you're going to eat. You could have made a seesaw. Sorry, you know those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somewhere. But anyway, going back to New Year, Christmas, it makes me laugh. Sorry, I... I <laughs> Don't be sorry at all. It's very funny, but it's true. I mean, those caviars are like a million dollars a kilogram or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then Donna Karen and everybody was there scratching each other's back, you know, um, auctioning off a piece of shit to raise money for, in this world, playgrounds in Russia. And then the woman who ran it was a, a model. I forgot her name, but she stood up. <laughs> I had to announce her. And she stood up, and it, it just kept going. It was like a building that just kept going. And I said, when she finally stood up, I said, you look like a pig. And that was the funniest thing I've ever said. Well, that was the moment they killed me. <laughs> These people hated me. They didn't get what the joke was. And then she did a speech where she cried about not having playground when she was growing up in Russia. And I was hysterical next to her. I could tell you more things I said, because once they hated me, I went for it. <laughs> <laughs> you did a few of those in your life. It's like, what are you people all about? That was my highest horror. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let, let's continue on the horror moments then. I think these are quite funny. That's not a bad title for a book. I was just going to say. <laughs> it's like the Buddha and I have another great title. You know, Tukton, who lives in my house, who wrote How to Be Human with uh -huh. Me. I always said, and he loves it, that our next book would be Act Like a Buddha, Think Like a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great title. <laughs> Isn't it? But Horror Moments is good too. I like that book. I think you would sell tons of that. Or I do the first half of the book about wisdom and about, you know, so you trick people and then you go into my Horror Moments. I think you should go the other way around. You should say, look, here is where I came from. These are my Horror Moments. But now I'm trying to do this, right? So you have hope too. I'm writing another book, and it is about a spiritual quest. Let's call it spiritual. Horror Moments is the title, totally. Of the beginning. Yeah. We have to acknowledge it's in small brackets. Call it Horror Moments on the path to, to Buddha. Wisdom. To wisdom. <laughs> I swear. That's good. Horror Moments on the route to wisdom. Yes. Brilliant. Share with me one more. When they took my job away from me on BBC after 25 years, I started clawing, you know, to please give me more fame, otherwise I won't get into restaurants. <laughs> they gave me a job and I did it. 
listen to the, I was studying already to be a psychotherapist because I always know when to leave the party before it leaves you. I wasn't going to end up a psychotherapist, but I knew get your attention away from this. And I had a good two years, you know, studying it. And I had new friends and I carried books and, you know, we went to the cafeteria, but I was still addicted to fame. So they offer, I'm many whore moments, but they offered me a job called, I can hardly say it without having a trauma, Cirque du Celeb, okay? Oh. And they dressed me as a, a, what is that, the guy who runs the circus? You know, the MC, or the circus barker, whatever, in a kind of corset with a whip. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to come out whipping, right? And then I'd introduce what the show was, which was D-list celebrities who had been caught having sex with a politician and coke lines up their ass. And they would perform various challenges each week, like on the wheel of death. You know, it's like Strictly Come Dancing, but really dangerous because they Mm -hmm. wanted to, you know, be famous. And they would do like uh, motorcycles in a circle with a lion on their heads, really daring things. But these were the people in the newspapers who were really on the way down. Not that they were ever up. Do you understand? You know what? Mm-hmm. Well, I had to go, look what she's doing. Look what Diane is doing. Isn't it wonderful? It's such a challenge. I was supposed to do that. But I'm not Graham Norton. So I was crying while I was looking up and only sarcasm came out of my mouth and they wanted me to be, what's her name? Claudia Winkleman and Davina just thinking it's wonderful. And these are just the lowest of the, you know, I'm sure they're wonderful people inside, but the desperation of fame, you could smell it. And I would just cry. And then finally uh, I said, oh, when are we going to do this again? I heard them saying they're doing a second season. They said, yeah, we're doing a second season. You're not. (laughs) And then I was practicing to be a psychotherapist. I had to have um, supervision sessions to talk about my clients. And the supervisor said, don't you think you shouldn't be studying to be a psychotherapist? And I said, why is that? Literally, she pointed out the window. This is where we were. We were in Hammersmith at Mind, where I was a volunteer. Pointed out the window. And you know, when you go toward the airport on the Cromwell Road, there was a a billboard of me that was literally, it's a famous billboard, huge. And I'm in my corset lying on my side, holding the whip. (laughs) That is surely a whole moment. I I would agree. That's a whole moment. But hold on. But hold on. There were people watching it. There was another season. Without me, the next season was a girl, you know, from Vegas. (laughs) Why do we watch those things? There is now a show on, I I actually don't know which TV it is, but I saw it once on... British TV, where I think they have girls in boxes. And yeah, it's, it is horrible. I can't even remember the details. It was so appalling where you sort of choose the ones that you like and then throw the other ones away. And it's like girls on display sort of thing or, or men on display, maybe in other episodes. I don't know. And man, 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 man. We're bitching about technology. And yet this is why we have mental cancer. You know, people are, they've lost their taste for quality. I think this stuff is dangerous. Totally. I think ha-ha 
funny and let's have a trillion people watching Love Island. But I think it's, that's what causes illness. Would you say that one of the things that would flip illness around is if people stop watching screens? Yes, I would say. I think you're teaching the masses. You're retraining their minds yeah. to really start craving more. So they can't tell the difference between watching refugees survive and watching a woman being thrown into the ocean in a box. You know, we're desensitized. But I don't want to be high and mighty and say, you know, I never go, isn't it a disgrace? I don't want to be that type of person. No, no, I'm, I actually talk about myself. So I, I have not had a TV when I moved into my tiny apartment here in Dubai. The telco was like, okay, I need internet because I'm doing podcasting and I need to record high quality. So I need a fast internet. And they said, well, that comes with TV. And I'm like, but I don't want TV. And they said, but it comes with TV. And, you know, they ended up giving me that little box that is supposed to be the most incredible thing with recording options and what have you. And to me, it's just like I rest my computer on it sometimes just to make it a little higher. But but it's a choice for me that I don't want TV in my life. I also don't want to swipe on Instagram. You know, I don't want to watch the news. I don't want horror movies. And you may think I'm weird, you know, that I don't live in this world. It just saves me so much pain. It's so much easier to not be exposed to that constant bombarding with things that I should become or things that I should believe. It's just the effort of having to filter through all of them and say, yeah, maybe I don't want to be that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think we would have a much better world if we didn't have. Your neurons are a reflection of everything you smell, taste. This is why people do mindfulness is to reroute. So when you're watching that, well, guess what's a reflection of it? Your neurons are matching what's on television. You can't help it. You know, everybody says, what about free will? Mm. Well, then choose to switch it off. There's free will. <laughs> That's free will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. So when will I see you? Are you ever coming to Dubai? Should I come to... Never, never, never. Oh, here's another horror moment. <laughs> <laughs> they took me to Dubai to do a... Um, you know, an award evening. So I'm sitting facing only Arabs, no women. I don't know who they thought they were buying, but it wasn't me. So I'm looking at them and the hatred I can see coming, swarming at me. So I played it the other way. I said, you know, I feel such a warmth coming from you and such love. And when they came up to get their awards, I would put my arm around them and like throw my head back like we were sharing a joke. <laughs> Or, you know, pinching their cheeks like this. It wasn't a horror moment, but it was a great moment. They asked me to come back the following year. There you go. There you go. There you go. Love and hugs work for everyone. So it wasn't a horror moment at all. That was a great moment. Okay, so in this new book, we will put that in the middle. So there are real horror moments at the beginning, not so hoary moments in the middle. Semi-horror moments. Yeah. And then enlightened moments. There you go. I love it. Yeah, all you need to do is tell me when you wake up, I ask Bella to bring you coffee and then you sit in the balcony and tell the telephone what your horror moments were. And there you go. Here is the next book coming up. Yeah, genius. All right. We'll speak again. Yeah, I will talk soon. Bye-bye. Love you, Ruby. Bye. <laughs> love to meet you. And for all of you who joined us, Thank you so much for listening. 
Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, SlowMo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.